I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast by the Takshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Welcome to All Things Policy, folks. Um, I'm joined today by our China watchers, Manoj and Suyash. And we are here not because of something that happened in China, but because rather of something unusual that happened in the United States. Last week, the White House released a declassified National Security Council document with the title U.S. Strategic Framework for the Indo-Pacific. Now, that's pretty remarkable for at least a couple of reasons. For one, the document was only approved in early 2018 uh, and was originally scheduled to be declassified only in 2042. Uh, sure, there are some redacted bits, but most of the document is actually available. Uh, the other reason this declassification is remarkable is that it comes just as the new Biden administration is going to take over, which is why there's speculation that it was declassified to maybe push for some degree of uh, continuity in American Indo-Pacific strategy under the Biden team. All right. I want to start, Manoj and Suyash, by asking you, what are your first impressions about this document? You know, it's not very often that we get to see such a document uh, while uh, history is unfolding. You know, this is so, this is the sort of thing that's, you know, that we normally look back at in retrospect. What are your first impressions from this document? Thanks, Aditya. Uh, so three or four points that I would like to highlight as first impressions regarding this document. Uh, first is the maybe a passing attempt of continuity rather than a change in U.S.'s approach towards uh, in the Indo-Pacific region. This can be uh, interpreted in two ways. One, the document has been already put out so that there is a continuity step. There is a continuity maintained when next, next regime takes over. That's one way of interpretation. The other way of interpretation is despite all the things that Trump is saying or all the self-contradictory things that Trump is doing, the bureaucracy's approach throughout the Trump's regime, especially since 2018, when things started heating up in the Indo-Pacific region, was constant. So there was a line of thought or a line of thinking to deal with this region. That's point number one. Two or three important points from this document. First one, the emphasis on India. It has been seen through the actions of the Trump regime that uh, a lot of focus has been on India or developing India's capabilities to as a counter or as a, or as a pivot to rebalance China's rise. That is one, one important thing. Second, Taiwan. A lot of emphasis has been play, given to Taiwan and enabling Taiwan to stand for itself. For example, And that is also seen in the action that the Trump regime took over the last two, three years. The six or seven uh, defense exchanges uh, have happened in this year itself. People in Trump's administration have started at lower level. It started with a lower level, but started visiting Taiwan. So all this shows uh, Trump's or the U.S.'s emphasis on building Taiwan as one of the many counterbalances to China. And third one, complete lack of understanding of what the region is and how important role the ASEAN plays in this, uh, ASEAN plays in this region. Uh, that's because there is only, throughout the course of the document, there is only one line saying that ASEAN centrality is important, something on this line. So ASEAN centrality is important to... U.S.'s approach to Indo-Pacific region. But uh, unlike actions regarding India and actions with Taiwan, 
US's actions with ASEAN are completely different. In fact, they have withdrawn from a lot of engagement with ASEAN, but the document states that ASEAN centrality is important and uh, it will increase over a future period. So uh, there is a contrary perception. Some of the activities they have stated that they have managed, but in case of, especially in case of ASEAN, they have not done what they have stated in the document. These are the primary things that I could think of. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely struck by uh, the relatively low priority or importance that seemed to be given to the ASEAN, at least in substance in the document. And, uh, you know, there was even a chunk connected to India's Act East policy, which is redacted for, uh, you know, for whatever mysterious reasons. Uh, but uh, Manoj, what are your impressions? Do you share Suyesh's uh, take? Not really, you know, I don't think this is about continuity. I think this is about the desire to create the space where uh, you don't see, and this is, I think, a fear that sort of the hardliners in the Trump administration have had with regard to Biden on China, that, you know, the Democrats will go soft on China. They didn't particularly appreciate Obama's pivot, which didn't really do much. So my sense is this is about creating discourse and putting out material there which places, sort of which boxes Biden in certain ways with regard to how he approaches China. And I think this is consistent with how we've seen uh, the State Department and the Commerce Department in the US under Trump right now in the last few weeks and months before he leaves take uh, steps with regard to China, which they sort of didn't do. One of them was obviously changed policy with regard to Taiwan, where you change the nature of engagement between Taiwanese and American officials formally. The other is that in just in this last week, we've seen more Chinese companies being added to the entity list, including Xiaomi. We've seen also more sanctions on officials in Hong Kong uh, and the mainland. And I think some of this is to basically, uh, you know, hard-code some of these decisions, which Biden will find difficult to walk away from. I see this as a this is release and this declassification in that context. I can see why they would want to do this because, you know, for the longest time since his election, Biden hasn't spoken about anything to do with the Indo-Pacific. You know, there are a couple of things with regard to Trump's foreign policy, which I believe uh, Pompeo and his administration and Trump's administration would see as successes. One is, uh, you know, the idea that they've identified China as a strategic rival and they sort of in some ways formalized that thinking across or played a role in sort of getting that thinking uh, trickled down uh, through Congress. Uh, uh, and, you know, there's a bipartisan consensus now largely in the context of the nature of that threat. How do you deal with that is another issue. But at least in terms of the nature of that threat, there is a consensus. And Pompeo talks about it quite clearly. So that is one achievement. Uh, of uh, his time at the State Department. Apart from obviously other things that I'm sure Trump will uh, claim as achievements, one of them being the fact that he did not launch a single war and the other being that he, uh, you know, in some ways reshaped uh, the Middle East or West Asia with the end with the Abraham Accords. So I think there are certain things that he will see and I think this is in that context. Indo-Pacific is part of that sort of uh, an achievement where you've created this, you know, at least the mechanisms for what could end up being a counterbalancing coalition if needed. But if not that, it could be a coalition of states that are willing, which could work not necessarily on military terms, but also on economic issues, technology issues, uh, which can then provide 
some sort of segmented globalization, which is where we are seem to be heading towards. Um, the interesting thing is that this is distinct from the conventional transatlantic alliance, which, I mean, Trump had weakened. But we're also, I mean, today you can see that there are sort of fissures in that. So I think I would see it in that sort of context of desiring continuity by this administration, as opposed to necessarily by the bureaucracy, because I don't think the bureaucracy is doing this. So that's the one thing. The other thing on this sort of specific document was that uh, there's clearly a difference between, uh, you know, what this says in some areas versus what, uh, you know, the June 2019 Department of Defense's Indo-Pacific Strategy Report says. And that's that sort of is, uh, is something about the bureaucracies, right? This declassification is by the National Security Advisor. That was by the Defense Department. And there are some differences with regard to how each of these documents talks. Um, I think one of them, you sort of spoken about ASEAN already, but the other aspect is that how it approaches Russia. Uh, in this document, which has been declassified, Russia is described as a marginal player relative to India, China, and the US in the Indo-Pacific. But in the DOD's uh, document, which is a public document, it talks about Russia being a revitalized malign actor in the Indo-Pacific. And that's in context of uh, the Russia-China partnership. I mean, if you think of uh, you know, talk about Russia, China, Iran doing joint naval drills and all that. You can see, you know, some bits of what the DOD is saying, but it's, I sort of tend to concur more with the declassified version of this document by the NSA. So there are some of those differences, specifically on the India thing. I, I mean, to me, this document sort of in some ways confirms a lot of what has been happening, uh, you know, uh, and that's uh, from an Indian point of view, it's perfectly good. Uh, you know, this is exactly what we would want. We would want the United States to work with us to enhance our capacity and also help us in some ways counterbalance China. But that's sort of secondary. The first primary thing is to work together to enhance our capacity. Um, so in that sense, it's great. I, I'm sure that there are certain people in India who would have issues with things like, you know, creating a fusion center in the Indian Ocean region uh, or a new regional forum to promote uh, sort of to quote, promote common practices and principles and standards. I think some of them would sort of balk at that uh, or at least would want India to take the lead in that. And we have to see how those things develop. The key aspect of this is obviously, I mean, one of the headline points of this was to create a, a security framework with India, Japan, Australia, and the United States as the principal hubs. And this is what the declassified document says. Again, something that from an Indian strategic thinker's point of view, one would say, okay, we welcome that. Uh, so I don't think much of it is an issue from our point of view. From a Chinese point of view, of course, that's the primary threat that's being addressed, uh, along with North Korea and others. So uh, in many ways, this document tells us what the Trump administration has been thinking and has been doing. The one, how effective it's been is another matter altogether. The one point to note is that on a couple of occasions, the document talks about a commitment to, quote, share the burdens and the fruits of your R&D and the rest of it to maintain the military edge. I think this is where somewhere where we can talk about Trump's efficiency because I think the burdens in some cases were highlighted far more. <laughs> Burden sharing was far more important. Uh, in India's case, it was more about uh, more positive, but in other cases, it was not. And that's where somewhere the legacy of this approach will be. Sure. So, yes. So, while Manoj was talking, I could think of two things. One, uh, the document could also, in a way, be to calm the nerves of all the allies and partners within the region because a lot of them a lot of countries don't know what would be the 
next regime's approach towards his region, given that it is a democratic regime. And as Manoj has already hi- highlighted, uh, they have not said significantly on how they are going to deal with China. That's point number one. And also, uh, Manoj made an important comparison between the Indo-Pacific document that was issued in 2019 and the recent document that was being de- that is declassified. If you remember, uh, in 2019, the classifications of countries with the US were made in three parts. Uh, first was allies, second was partners, and third was, third was partners to be or future partnerships. Now there is a significant change or there is a slight change uh, that India has already shifted into partners category to be partners from 2019. And also it is good that they are using the terms partners rather than allies in case of India, which would be very much acceptable for a lot in New Delhi or strategic thinker, a lot, a majority of strategic thinkers in India. All right. Yeah. So that makes sense. Uh, But, you know, Manoj, you did talk about... uh, how uh, this has the Trump administration stamp all over it. Uh, how has the Trump administration followed through on this strategy? This was formalized in early 2018. In the period since, uh, has the Trump administration lived up to the promises it has made to itself in this document? Yeah, I think the record is sort of mixed, right? I mean, uh, on a military sort of front, I think uh, particularly with Australia, China, sorry, Australia, India, Japan, uh, I think there has been significant movement, right? I mean, uh, also from a diplomatic point of view, you know, now you've got better sort of two plus two dialogues uh, structured with everybody uh, and you're doing much more. So in that sense, I think there is significant movement and the hesitation that existed, uh, you know, whether it was in India or Australia in the past has sort of gone away. Both these countries are far more willing to engage. The future of the Quad, I think there has to be much more conversation on that, uh, particularly with regard to the economic and technological side. I don't think enough has happened in that domain. Uh, so in that sense, I would sort of see it as limited success uh, with regard to these four countries. In East Asia, which was the sort of principal uh, hub and spoke system of alliances, I think there is where we see significant failure. And I think that has a lot to do with Trump's own approach to the region. I mean, he was very reluctant to travel. He didn't like the idea of traveling that far and attending summits. And I think you need to show up. Uh, That's the first thing, right? If you don't show up, you don't get anything done eventually. So that, to me, was a problem. Secondly, Trump's own approach of being extremely mercurial, pulling out of the TPP, those are the kinds of things that sort of created issues with regard to reliability and trust. Then you've got these negotiations with uh, Japan, the Philippines and South Korea, where you're talking about essentially, uh, you know, burden sharing, to put it politely. But essentially, there's a shakedown, right? You're saying that, look, if our troops are here, if, you know, we're doing this and we're providing you security covers, you need to be paying up much more. And those conversations don't necessarily work very well, or at least how they were approached, it didn't work very well. I mean, if you remember Trump early on in his term started talking about, I don't mind if Japan and whatever else goes and develops nuclear weapons, they can take care of things themselves. I think that sort of petty, you know, the petty sort of thug approach of, you know, I'm going to provide you security, uh, you pay me up for it. Uh, that sort of doesn't work accordingly, particularly when you're talking about a relationship, which is, you know, post-World War uh, relationship, which is sort of developed over 50, 60, 70 years, and which is being challenged by the rise of China. Uh, so instead of providing greater reassurance, I think those sorts of things created 
an issue. And that's why you saw changes within the region. And I think the Philippines is the most sort of significant actor in all of this in terms of as an example. If you look at the changed nature of uh, American diplomacy in the Philippines, I mean, it's not obviously just the U.S. It's Rodrigo Duterte also has a lot to do with this. Um, but the sort of repeated questioning of uh, the defense treaty between the two, uh, you know, Duterte's uh, approach to Beijing. Uh, I mean, I was reading today, you had uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi's interview in the People's Daily after his recent visit to the Philippines. And he talks about how the relationship has gone through ups and downs, but now we are at a point where we've gone through all those changes and now we're on an upward trajectory. Um, it tells you a little bit about the failure of American diplomacy in the region uh, under Trump. So in that sense, I think their approach has not been successful. And I think there is where we can probably see hopefully a change with the Biden administration. Okay, uh, that does make sense. Yeah, the Trump administration has not exactly covered itself with the glory when it comes to assuring its uh, existing allies. But uh, talking about the new administration, uh, Kurt Campbell is going to become uh, Biden's coordinator, basically, for the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and he had co-authored a quite interesting uh, article last year in Foreign Affairs, which did reflect some of these ideas, including the idea that of what sort of force structure the U.S. would want in the Pacific, how it would approach China and so on. Do you see some of that reflected here? Yeah, so I think it's interesting that Biden chose Kurt Campbell. And it's interesting, like Suresh said, right, there, there must have been anxieties about, you know, what sort of changes are we going to see? But I mean, at least what we now know is that uh, the Indo-Pacific nomenclature will survive and the Indo-Pacific structure will survive. I mean, the U.S. now is an Indo-Pacific command, which was established under Trump, and that will survive. So that sort of reorientation will survive irrespective of Beijing's desire to relegate all of this to the dustbin of history, as I quote them. And that's a good thing from an Indian point of view. Now, when, when you look at the piece that, uh, you know, Kurt Campbell and Rush Toshi have written, they sort of compare, uh, you know, the Indo-Pacific uh, geography and uh, sort of geopolitically from the point of view of pre-World War One Europe. And they say that, yes, there are differences, but sort of you can see a similar flux. This region has enjoyed a long degree of peace, a long period of peace, somewhat like sort of the you know, 100-year peace in Europe. Uh, and the idea is that uh, structural factors are making a change to that sort of arrangement and you're going to see far more flux in the region, which again, I sort of agree with that. I don't know enough about the 100-year period of peace and what structural factors changed Europe in history, but, uh, and I'm sure Aditya, you know much more about that. But the idea is that uh, there is a flux and that's changing it. This peace was predicated on, in some ways, the guarantees of the system that was established after World War II and obviously American primacy. And that's also changing. So they talk about sort of three factors that are creating all this flux. One is Chinese assertiveness and uh, a U.S. ambivalence to the region, which is what we spoke about under Trump particularly. And even under Obama, when Obama announced the pivot, the pivot did not do much. They talk about how what you now need is, uh, you know, some sort of a balance of power, some sort of a coalition to address China's rise and some sort of an order to be created on the basis of both of these factors, which the region by and large recognizes as legitimate. I think that's an important thing to understand that you need to recognize the agency of these states and how these states across the region, including India, Southeast Asian states, look at the world. Um, so to me, that's a positive thing to look at, that you need to think of it from that point of view. Um, what they therefore suggest is, and some of the interesting suggestions that they have, is that they want the U.S. Uh, 
to make a conscious effort to deter Chinese adventurism. And for this, what they want the United States to do is to move away from its singular focus on primacy, which again would be sort of music to folks in Delhi. And the idea of doing that is, you know, don't invest in these large, uh, you know, platforms like aircraft carriers and all of that. You should be deterring China, just like how China used to deter you through asymmetric means and also establishing the capabilities, particularly the asymmetric capabilities of your partners in the Indo-Pacific, including, say, India, Taiwan, and the rest of them. So again, that's an interesting sort of way to look at uh, how they see American primacy now being predicated not on just American military might, but also on the might of other partners. And they then sort of talk about how do you create this legitimacy of of the order within the region. Uh, They talk about, importantly, about a managed decoupling from China, in which you sort of actively work to move supply chains, shifting them to other local economies and creating new growth opportunities. Really, really important from India's point of view. I think this aspect of uh, the economic aspect of this Indo-Pacific strategy has not been discussed enough, has not been explored enough uh, at uh, a level of academics, researchers, scholars, to even government officials. And I think this is where one needs to do much more work. And so I'm sort of very happy when I read this, that this is what Kurt Campbell is writing about. What he does about it is a different deal altogether. Uh, In general, if you look at Kurt Campbell's views on Trump's policies, particularly in this part of the world, he's quite uh, supportive of it. So what you see is that you don't, you will not see a US walking back uh, on his sort of competition with China, but you probably hopefully see a US being much more smart in the way it competes and looks at nuances as opposed to, you know, getting into confrontation on things like what we've seen with uh, the Trump administration, right? You know, banning of journalists, shutting down institutes and the rest of it, which do little other than create uh, antagonism without achieving any tangible objectives. So I think some of this might hopefully change. But at the moment, if you go through that foreign affairs piece and what you read from what they're saying, it... uh, sounds ideal from an Indian point of view in many ways. Um, so I think that's that's my takeaway from it largely. Yeah, we can definitely hope that the Biden administration will have uh, a better economic strategy, uh, one that's more equipped uh, to handle this shift in supply chains. Uh, you know, the Trump administration had, uh, at least to my mind, absolutely no coherent economic strategy. It uh, waged uh, these half-hearted trade wars with both friends and enemies to no real discernible strategic end, at least. Uh, and I don't think there was an economic case for them either. Uh, but, uh, you know, going back to the other part of uh, the argument that Kurt Campbell and Rush Doshi made, like you said, they did, you know, go away from this language of primacy. And uh, more specifically, and I want to bring you in here, Suyash, they do talk about declassified uh, strategy document does talk about denying China's sustained air and sea dominance inside the first island chain. And also defending the first island chain nations and finally dominating all domains outside the first island chain. Now, the portion after that first island chain is is redacted. But I find it really interesting that they're talking about dominating domains outside the first island chain. But within the first island chain, they're more interested in denying uh, China's sustained air and sea dominance. Uh, What do you see in this, Soyash? Uh, that's an interesting, interesting and a very tall claim to be made. Okay, it's a policy claim which means that they would be sustained resources to back this claim. 
But Aditya, uh, the first claim that the document makes regarding denying China sustained uh, air and sea uh, in the first island chain, this is something which needs a lot of attention. To do it unilaterally means to develop asymmetric capabilities, which Manoj is already pointing out, or to enable the countries within the region or the allies to develop asymmetric capabilities. And a part of it has already started. For example, use of Taiwan or the activities, though a reaction that we have seen by the United Nations since uh, 2019, mid early 2019, where they have started more actively engaging in the South China Sea. Uh, the number of sorties uh, have increased in the uh, East China Sea or near Chinese coast. No, not exactly in 200 mi uh, nautical miles, but these kind of activities have increased over the past year, year and a half, especially in the latter half of 2020. So clearly they are moving towards it, but having said, saying this is one thing and doing it is another thing. It will require a sustained resource backing to develop such asymmetrical claim, asymmetrical capabilities in this region. And looking at where China is right now, uh, we can safely say that they have developed, up to a certain extent, developed A2 and AD capabilities in this region. So breaking those capabilities and developing such capabilities will not be a easy task to live up to or easy claim to live up to, I think. All right, uh, that does make sense. Suyash, uh, you've written a paper uh, on proposing what India's strategy for the Indian Ocean and the Indo-Pacific should be. How does that connect with this declassified document? Uh, are there bits that are at tension or at odds with each other or do they fit in well? So the paper is called India's Cater Expansion, Use of Sea Power to Balance China's Rise. This was written in, the, uh, in IPPR, which is Takshashila's journal. Uh, so it very well connects with what the Indo-Pacific strategy document which was recently declassified says in fact the first reaction after reading that document uh, my first reaction after reading that document was i should have waited for a couple of more months so that i, I could have used some bits and pieces from this document i'm not making the larger argument but i'll focus on the us part from the journal article i basically argue this use of sea power uh, for forward balancing china and uh, one part of it is regarding partnerships. One part of the argument is regarding partnerships in which US plays a central role. In line with what they have said in the declassified document, I was basically arguing that uh, there should be more capability building on US's part in case of India, uh, how that capability could be built in peacetime activity, peacetime, during peacetimes, that is sharing of resources in sea, uh, sharing of intelligence, uh, and how this capability building, which happens during the peacetime, could be used in case of escalation. That is, uh, all the flotillas going together, uh, put demonstration and develop demonstration of capability in the Indian Ocean, that, or based on the capabilities that it have, India has built in the peacetime, and demonstration of capability or power on the east of Malacca in a partnership system with the underlying assumption that India is uh, looking at India's budget, uh, budgetary constraint. Uh, so with allies on east of Malacca. So these all things coming together em emphasizes on the uh, importance of US uh, for development as well as demonstration of Indian capabilities and power to balance China's rise in the Indo-Pacific region. This was the larger argument that I was making. US being one important part of development and demonstration of India's capabilities. Okay, 
That's awesome. We'll definitely have a link to your uh, paper in, in, in the low bar in the description. And we'll also link to the declassified uh, document. Uh, thank you all for joining us. Uh, if you have any thoughts about the Indo-Pacific strategy or, or our thoughts about the Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, do write back to us. We'd love to hear what you think. And thank you all for joining us on All Things Policy. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM Podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.